0: Hello and welcome to this GCP Short produced in collaboration with TMF Group, the insurance premium tax specialists. Over the next 15 minutes or so, I'll be joined by two good friends of the podcast, Karen Jenner, TMF's IPT Client Engagement Director, and Owen Williams, Global Programs and Captives Regional Director for the UK, Nordics and Ireland at AXA XL. We will be honing in on the consideration and challenges concerning insurance premium tax and the location of risk when it comes to global and captive insurance programs. We will discuss why location is important in these calculations, what needs to be considered as captives increasingly participate in different layers of programs and the collaboration needed with fronting partners. But first, Owen begins by providing some context as to how captive programs are being used differently in the hard market environment.
1: So when you think about how captives have been used traditionally, it's, it's probably more in that primary placement, first layer. Um, whereas now what we're seeing, and this is probably driven by the market conditions, is people are actually using their captives to fill gaps in their towers where they, where they can't get the towers home. You know, for example, large property or liability towers. Um, so taking out portions in towers. And then also we're seeing people actually buying out specific coverages. So you know, maybe non-damaged BI, for example. And then, and then lastly, we we're also seeing people using captives as a means to then access either parametric solutions or alternative capital.
0: Great, thank you Owen. So Karen, taking on board some of the stuff that Owen said there, why is the location of risk so important when calculating insurance premium tax and, and how is this different across different insurance lines?
2: So location of risk is one of the three fundamental considerations uh, for assessing where IPT due. So it sits alongside the, the type of insurance being underwritten and also the basis on which the cover is written. Uh, When you refer to how it differs across insurance lines, the line of business is more particularly relevant in the EU. Uh, So EU legislation is fairly prescriptive with the rules for identifying risk location across four main categories. Uh, The first one is property risk, normally nice and straightforward. The risk is deemed to be located where the building is physically situated. Secondly, for vehicles, uh, registration is key. And also when we say vehicles, this can include not just uh, motor vehicles, but also ships, boats and aircraft. The third category is um, short-term travel, uh, and this is identified where the, where the contract or policy is for a period of four months or less. The risk location is deemed as the jurisdiction or territory where the policyholder took out the policy. And then the fourth category is basically a catch-all for everything else. So where a risk doesn't fall into any of those three that I've mentioned, um, it's the habitual residence or establishment of the policyholder uh, to which the contract relates that determines the risk location. When we move outside of Europe, it's all very much territory uh, rather than region-dependent, um, and very less across lines of business. Just a couple of examples to illustrate, Australia will define a risk located in the territory where an insured is situated or an insured event can occur within Australia. In the US, the home state ruling allows commercial policyholders to be taxed in the state where they have their principal place of business. This can avoid multiple state taxes uh, on both the surplus lines and self-procurement basis being charged. And Switzerland's another example uh, where stamp duty is applied either to the domestic portfolio of a Swiss insurer or to those risks where the domestic policyholder has concluded with a foreign insurer. I think it's safe to say that for a captive knowing and understanding the business of its parent, uh, this allows for a, uh, maybe a more accurate and bespoke allocation of risk than possibly the broader brush approaches that may be used by commercial insurers.
0: Owen, um, when it comes to adding new lines uh, to a captive or, or maybe playing in some of those different areas that you mentioned in your first answer. What processes need to be gone through with the insurance, reinsurance and and fronting partners to make sure that's done effectively and correctly?
1: The first comment I'd make here is that generally it's best done in tandem with approaching the market around risk transfer. Uh, And there's there's two reasons for that. So firstly, most fronters at least will have a requirement to participate in the risk as well as fronting the risk. And secondly, when they're calculating a, a fronting fee, a lot of that is going to be using elements of the actuarial work that's done around pricing of the risk, uh, and that would be they'll be using that to assess both the credit risk, but also the, the capital costs. So that's just kind of an overarching statement in terms of how you approach the market. But then when you're making your assessment of a fronting partner, it ranges from the kind of the more basic territorial spread, you know, can they issue contract where you need contract issued? Through to the more detailed, actually, can they issue the types of wording that you need? Do you have specific bespoke requirements in certain territories? Can they handle your certificate issuance needs to be issued to your local businesses? And, of course, claims handling capability. You know, you're going to have claims on your program most likely, and, and they're going to be, need to be handled appropriately. Or if you want them to work with a, a third-party handler for your claims Does that relationship work? Do they have experience there? Just wrapping up the claims bit, of course, your captors going to need claims data. Can they provide you the claims data, the the granular claims data that you might need in the fashion that you want it? Uh, And last but not least, uh, you know, money talks. So money movement uh, in terms of moving the premiums uh, back out to the captive and collection of, of claims payments. So that, that all wraps into an overarching assessment of a fronting partner. In terms of what a fronting partner is, is doing, um, in, in terms of pricing that, so obviously they're pricing out service, you know, how, how long is it going to take, what are the charges they're going to incur, but then also they'll be running a credit review. So they're going to be taking a view of the captive as a credit risk and that's going to be formulating their collateral stance. So generally... Uh, I can't speak for all funders here, but generally that will involve a review of both the captive and the parent uh, to understand the, the actual security uh, of, of those parties. And then also a review, normally at least, of your ground up claims data and exposure data. And, and what we're doing there is we're trying to understand well, what's the monetary value of the credit risk that we're running. And all those things put together, of course will formulate a collateral stance. So just a a last comment here on timing. Uh, So most captive-fronted structures will sit behind um, insurance policies, and often that's a global programme. And timely issuance of the contracts within a global programme is often a key client need. So often clients will need their certs, um, their certificates locally, for inception. But delivery of that global programme to a client uh, hinges really on successful completion of the negotiation that goes before it. So my comment would just be around you know early engagement um, and conclusion of that negotiation is really essential to ultimately deliver the client's needs.
0: Great, thank you Owen. So Karen, uh, as Captive do as captives do write new lines, you know, Owen was talking there obviously very much from the kind of a, a, a fronted programme perspective, but as captives do write new lines on a direct basis or plug gaps or enter uh, excess layers, etc., what do the captives and, and, their cap- and the captive owners need to consider with regards to IPT allocations and, and the compliance?
2: So first and foremostly, licensing issues must be considered depending on both the location of risk and also the domicile of the captive. Uh, for example, ensuring European risk will prove to be more of a challenge for non-EU-based captives compared to their EU counterparts who have the ability to write cross-border in the EU EEA on a freedom of services basis. For an EU-based captive writing risk outside of Europe, the ability to write non-admitted insurance increases, though this, however, may then pass compliance responsibilities to the policyholder. Where responsibilities for settling liabilities fall to the local insured entity, it's important that the captive considers the local appetite, uh, resource and knowledge of that insured entity to be not only aware of their responsibilities, but also their abilities to discharge any liabilities. It's probably important to add here as well, we're talking about non-admitted insurance. We'd cover under that bracket, uh, difference in conditions, difference in limits, or Dick Dill, uh, which from a tax authority perspective is is seen exactly the same as as non-admitted insurance. Um, Another key consideration, uh, and the final consideration, would be around financial interest clauses being used. Uh, And a captive, again, uh, with its captive owner, is well placed to have a true understanding of where real financial interest exists within the business.
0: Thanks, Karen. So, Owen, I think we've touched upon some of this before, or it's it's become clear over the last uh, 10 minutes, but you know, how much added flexibility is a captive really providing uh, corporate insurance buyers at the moment when presenting with these challenging market conditions? Uh,
1: So the short answer is a lot of flexibility. Mm. Um, You know, we've spoken about various ways you can use your captive, and options are good for any risk manager, and it certainly gives you lots of options also it you know it demonstrates to ensure that you're prepared to share in your risk you've got skin in the game and that in itself is, is a, a powerful tool and a powerful message to take to the market so it's, it's entirely logical when you think about the market conditions right now that you know we're seeing an increase both in the formation of captives and existing captives you know writing increasing uh, premium volume so certainly market conditions and captive usage are kind of swinging together which makes a lot of sense. The one comment I would make here is a lot of the new captive formations are being driven by clients who have needs in distressed lines of business. So thinking, you know, d PI, possibly PL as well with social inflation. And whilst that, that is a fantastic tool for a risk manager to deal with the immediate market conditions, a lot of those distress lines, you know, they're distressed for a reason and they have longer tails. So you really have to think long and hard before putting those into your captive because, you know, once they're in, you are committed to those for the for the longer term. And when you couple that to... A lot of this is happening quite last minute in the renewal cycle, so we're seeing a lot of rushed startups of captives, or a lot of rushed efforts to put new risks into captives. And you you do wonder, from a feasibility study perspective, you know, is is the exit strategy for those lines? Because you will need an exit strategy at some point, most likely. Is that really being thought through? And I'm sure in many cases it is, but I. I suspect in some cases it's not and and that does worry me slightly because you know in a few years down the line that the the incumbent risk manager may no longer be there but the risk will still be there and the captive will still be there there will be a need to to have a well-planned exit strategy uh, for those for those lines,
0: I think it's an interesting point because obviously you know we're all getting very excited, or us in the captive industry are getting very excited over the last couple of years. There's a whole new generation of of captives being formed on both sides of the pond in Asia as well. Lots of activity. So it's and there's some exciting types of new types of companies forming captives and ensuring different kinds of risks, as we just mentioned. We're going to come on to in a second you know, DNO particularly, uh, but it will be interesting in five to ten years to look back and just kind of take stock of how those captives developed. What are the successful ones? Were there any unsuccessful ones? You know, touch wood, hopefully not. But uh, it is going to be interesting to see how this kind of new cohort of captors develop over time. Karen, we've not spoken specifically about many lines of insurance on on this pod but you know one area we have heard a lot about and we have talked about a lot on the podcast over the last 12 months or so has been uh dno and, and captives writing more dno insurance for their captives some captives have been specifically set up just to write dno we've had a couple of cannabis companies on the on the pod in the last year or so talking about that very issue how is location of risk defined regarding dno and is there anything particularly to consider uh, when it Comes to writing DNO from an IPT perspective.
2: Sure. So, from a calculation and reporting perspective, DNO is one of the most straightforward lines of business for compliance. If we contrast that, say, to employee benefits, where we would need to consider multiple products, additional reporting requirements, and, and possibly a mixture of life and non-life insurance products. Or equally, we could look at motor or property, even a more traditional insurance written by captives, where additional levies and pools are funded by additional taxes and parafiscals. As well as there being increased reporting requirements, so compliance for DNO uh, is 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 fairly straightforward from an IPT perspective. From a location of risk perspective, you know the captive and the policy holder are well placed again to define that allocation of risk. Um, so they know their business and their territories in scope. Uh, in the commercial market, DNO risk is uh, most simply calculated based on headcount or revenue. However, in the D&O space, uh, one area of concern we are seeing is not actually just relating to captives, but, but more generally across the uh, commercial markets too. So increasing premiums and reduced capacity in London and Europe means that we've seen a marked increase in European D&O business being written stateside or outside of Europe, particularly for European business um, businesses with American parent companies. This isn't always a concern, uh, once again depends on where the risk is located, uh, but we are now um, receiving lots of inquiries for non-European insurers and captives who have plugged gaps in the programmes or picked up excess lines, uh, lines on excess layers of d at the last minute without due planning and then post-bind looking into how uh, the programme can be made compliant. In such scenarios there are some territories where there are no problems uh, but it's not consistent and here again, I'm talking about IPT consequences, not about regulatory issues uh, or the ability to pay or fulfil claims in, in some territories, which obviously can be an interest on DNO coverage. So, looking at some of the examples of these uh, insurers writing into Europe. In the UK, uh, insurers anywhere in the world uh, can and indeed must register and file IPT with HMRC. That's not a problem. In some European territories, such as Germany, the local policyholder can be required to remit taxes. So again, that that can be made compliant. In other territories, uh, for example, Netherlands and Denmark, the appointment of a formal fiscal rep may have to act on behalf of a non-EU insurer. Uh, this option might increase the cost of compliance, mainly due to the joint and several liability responsibilities to the fiscal rep, who who may also require a form of security as, as part of their appointment. But the big problem um, facing clients with European DNO being covered from outside of the region is in those territories where compliance just isn't possible. There isn't always a solution in some of the southern European territories such as Italy, Spain, and Portugal, which leaves the policyholder potentially exposed in the event of a claim which has then been written on a non basis. Well, it's
0: really interesting, one of those last points you made there, Karen, about kind of which, which reflects what Owen said about yeah, you know, people are coming up to renewals. They're rushing and they've made a last-minute decision to in- insert their captive into a program. In this case, the DNO, and then they're kind of asking the client the compliance questions afterwards. Obviously, I imagine that's probably not seen as, as best practice, but that seems to be the state of the world we're, we're currently living in. So, uh, I guess just to conclude, what are the, the main considerations for captive owners when when ensuring compliance and and correct allocation of risk as as all kinds of programs, uh, captive programs are expanding?
2: Yeah, so I guess we we don't. Want to be, you know, putting captives off these new lines or, or plugging gaps, and none of these issues that we've brought up today should exist without the right planning, timing, and advice. I mean, captives, you know, generally work closely with their broking and fronting partners, as well as with other third-party service providers, you know, and they should truly understand their business and, and maximize their own direct right capabilities alongside the use of uh, commercial partners and, and fronting insurers to ensure that global programs don't just meet the business needs, but they ensure compliance for all the parties involved.
0: Well, thank you to Karen Jenner of TMF and Owen Williams at AXA XL for a valuable 15-minute session on an area of high importance, particularly for sophisticated captive owners. For more information on our guests and friend of the podcast TMF, please do visit the globalcaptivepodcast.com website. In the meantime, stay well, stay safe, and see you next time, captives.